hospitality operators should be knowing is people come to their venue uh, for the experience. So we, we're not selling food, we're selling the experience. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking Tasmania, where I was really amazed and interested and keen to learn more about the fact that uh, Nepalese is actually the third most spoken language in the island state after English and Mandarin. Uh, Hobart, capital of Tasmania, is also home to Australia's only Nepalese pub. And we are talking today to Kieran Tapa, who is the owner of that pub. There is so much to Kieran's story and I am really keen to dig into it today. Welcome to Daddy Lynn and Karen. Thank you. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. So there are so many strings to your bow. You are a Nepalese-born Australian entrepreneur. You've got all kinds of fingers in different pies. When someone asks you what you do, how do you describe yourself? Uh, I describe myself as an entrepreneur, always looking for opportunities and then trying to uh, create jobs and then create something out of nothing. (laughs) Amazing. And so tell me about opening Australia's first Nepalese pub, the Chowk, in Hobart, Tasmania. Um, we were actually doing a flower field uh, in Orielton, which is just 35 kilometres of Hobart. Uh, and then the flower field, actually, we would have some uh, cafe and some dessert bar and so on. When we had that border closure issue due to the coronavirus, that COVID thing, I couldn't go there and we couldn't do any work in the farm. And that's when we decided, OK, how about we go and start doing some dessert bar instead? And that's when this alcohol bar came up for sale. And then when we got this pub for sale and then I just didn't know what to do and how to do. Then I then took a big step, and it's which is a kind of like gambling as well, uh, to define this as a Nepalese pub because uh, it's just the, the only Nepalese pub because no one has actually done this before. I'm not saying um, the idea was new or anything, but the, the, the stake was too much. Uh, the rent, the premises, and then uh, the project was too big, and then uh, putting that uh, Nepalese uh, tag on any uh, alcohol and then the food venue was a kind of big gamble to me. And that's how we got this uh, Nepalese pub started uh, out of nowhere. <laughs> well, it's a great story and there's so much to what you've just said. I mean, let me, let's start with the name. Like, in what does the chowk mean? The chowk actually is an intersection. Uh, which is very popular uh, Nepalese word. And when we're going to uh, invite our friends to hang out somewhere, let's go to the chalk. And, you know, we got lots of chalk. The intersections we call the, the crossroad, the crossroad, actually. And then not only the crossroad, but also provides lots of cafes and, the, you know, people to uh, hang out and, you know, like get together. So it's just like kind of like very easy word. Let's go and, you know, meet there type of thing. And then that's how we pick up that name. And so, I mean, who is your audience? I mean, there are thousands of Nepali people in Tasmania. Are they your main audience or are you are you trying to expose the broader community to Nepalese food and culture? No, actually, we're trying to uh, include all the, like, most of my customers are obviously uh, within the three-kilometer radius of my South Hobart Avenue. And then we also got the uh, Nepalese people residing in Tasmania. They are my second client base. And then the third one is lots of Nepalese and other people visiting their friends and family in Tasmania. Uh, it's their go-to place. Uh, I'll tell you one thing is that lots of Nepalese population in Australia, not only Tasmania, uh, everywhere. Uh, and then... Uh, 
most of the hospitality venues are actually um, uh, supported by these people, like in the kitchen and in the hospitality and the nursing industry and the engineering industry. All these uh, people are there. And when you go uh, anywhere, chances are that you might meet one or two Nepalese people. So then people obviously have some curiosity how they eat, how they actually bring this culture. And then that's why actually I wanted to bring that Nepalese uh, livelihoods. Uh, Nepalese people are very happy. Nepalese people are very loyal. Nepalese people are hard worker and honest. So, and then they also celebrate hard. And then that's why I just wanted to actually showcase this Nepalese cuisine because there are lots of other hospitality venues doing that uh, in our Nepalese community. But the problem is that they uh, are not bold enough to promote the Nepalese foods only. I mean, they have been uh, tied up with some South Asian type of thing. But putting that Nepalese food uh, on, on the table and then uh, trying to serve the Nepalese foods only is a big step. And then that's how I even actually cater all the broader audience and obviously my uh, customers are within that uh, three kilometer radius and then the people living in Tasmania and then uh, people visiting Tasmania uh, from interstate. Mm. I mean, it's true. Like every kitchen has um, Nepalese people in it in Australia and they're often, yeah, the absolute backbone of of kitchens. I mean, we spoke recently to a Nepalese kitchen hand who works at fine dining restaurant Vudimond and he's, yeah, absolutely crucial to everything that that restaurant does. So I love the idea of, you know, bringing the culture more to the fore and really, you know, having that thread running through the restaurant where it's not just the people, it's not just that the people are, are making everything happen and it's that you, you get to eat the food from their culture as well. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. tell us some of the key dishes that you're doing there. Um, we got like uh, signature dishes, which we call a mustangko alu, which is a uh, mustang is a kind of like Himalayan region. I'll tell you the story. I'm not uh, uh, the, the, the kitchen person. I'm not the celebrity chef or anything, but I'm a very uh, avid traveler. So I love traveling all around uh, Australia or whenever in Nepal, I travel a lot. And every time I go and encounter a new food from that particular region, then I actually work with my kitchen team. Hey, can we put this on our table and then see how we actually uh served to our in a broader audience and then um, the foods that we have also got from different parts of the uh, uh of the country where it is actually widely used and uh the couple of like signature dishes that you have for example are like mustang koala mustang is one of the most popular tourism destination in nepal which is a trans himalayan part and then it is it is a sacred place for buddhist and hindus so people in eating that type of recipe that, you know, the the spices and the the way they eat it, we actually have brought it here. So which is a crispy fried potato, which we cook with Himalayan spices and then serve with buckwheat pancakes and salad. So that's one uh, of our signature product. And also another one is a rice wine, which Nepalese people actually drink in a traditional bowl uh, with some snacks, obviously. (laughs) We don't actually drink alcohol by itself. Uh, Like we always have some snacks on the side. Uh, And then which we call the Sol Marika Dabak. So on our menu, I have also done, I spent quite a lot of time in designing how the people who do not know anything about Nepal and Nepalese food can actually find these foods on our menu. So kind of menu engineering, I have done that. And uh, like when you walk into our menu and when you look at the the page of our menu, it is very obvious for you to uh, figure out what our signature dishes are. Wow. I mean, it's so interesting that this is your first hospitality venture and you come from the, with this entrepreneurial background and outlook. I, I know from your website, you've got a PhD in finance. You've yeah. taught finance and private wealth at universities and you've got your own, um, you know, financial advisory business. A, a lot of people, you know, that have 
I guess, been brought up in hospitality find the business side of it, you know, pretty challenging. And of course, the last couple of years have had, you know, incredible challenges. As someone who's got, you know, a real um, interest and acuity for for finance, how does the hospitality world strike you? (laughs) Actually, before I jumped into finance, I was a civil engineer too. I actually uh, did my master's from Melbourne Uni (laughs) and then uh, in engineering. And I actually worked for the local council in Stonington Council, uh, Chapel Street. Um, I was there working as a traffic engineer. So the engineering background. (laughs) You got so much going on. It's just just down the road from me. You probably sorted out some roundabouts that I drive around. That's right. So the, the, the engineering background that I have actually helps me look at the things differently, break down into the uh, like piece, like the processes, you know, and then, uh, you know, uh, then rearrange again and things like that. So the hospitality or any other businesses, you know, you got the product or service and you also got the marketing and sales. So they're separate compartments. So being very good at food, being very good at uh, uh, one thing is not enough to uh, to survive or to success, to be successful in a business. So there should be a multiple uh, wheels, you know, operating at the same time uh, we need to have the marketing we need to have the sales we need to have the operation and uh, product development and service delivery and of course accounting and finance and not uh, our team in Hobart obviously they are the service delivery team but we also got some people helping us from Nepal who are helping us with the graphic design and you know the, the social media management and things like that and uh, as you can um, uh, as you know by now that I'm in Sydney so I'm actually providing all the the, the, the uh, guardian you know the support you like a coordinator of everything. Um, and then looking at the hospitality, what I found is uh, obviously, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a tough industry, but uh, it can be scaled up. So for you to scale that off, I think for whoever is starting into the hospitality, they need to set aside first nine months, I would say. The first three months is about... Uh, testing your idea or the product you know how it how how well is uh, it is it being received by the audience and then the second three months would be uh, looking into the consistency of that idea so and then the last three months would be setting the standards and systems so that you measure each and every item you got exactly the recipe book on uh, in, in the in the bar or in the kitchen no matter whoever actually makes that dish it's presented in the exactly same manner uh, most of the hospitality businesses when you have the changes uh, in uh, like the kitchen staff then you can see the change in the taste and presentation everything but I mean that shouldn't be the case so we should have some standards and systems set in place so the first three months about testing your ideas second three months is about maintaining that consistency and then the third three months is about standards and systems so when we do that then I think the venue is actually uh, ready for scal- scalability so then you can actually expand elsewhere you can actually increase the sales because getting the lots of customers into your door doesn't necessarily mean the profit you know what i mean as uh, until and unless you have that unit cost you know product pricing and all these things done then getting enough guests uh, a lot of guests is not going to make you the profit so uh, it could be a different industry but uh, every business is the same so and we are in our ninth month, I mean, so, I mean the third quarter. So we are working on the setting up standards and processes. So, um, wow, so interesting. And, I mean, can you talk a bit more about that consistency? Because, I mean, I was at a dinner last night and somebody mm-hmm. asked me, you know, what do you think is the most important thing in a restaurant, you know, when you're looking at a restaurant. And I said, you know what, I think it's consistency because, yeah, yeah you want to be able to go back and, and have a yeah. similar experience or send your friends there and, you know, you, you want them to experience what you experienced. Um, yeah. But, I mean, tell us what some of the systems you're putting in place to ensure the, the, that consistency. Um, the recipe uh, uh, must be written down. 
Um, I mean, most of the people in hospitality, I found is they actually got everything in the head. So they, they run by the emotions. So that needs to be uh, written down on the paper and, it, and, and then uh, put uh, in the folder in the kitchen. So what I mean by that is so do the recipe, the process, and then the finished product, how it is being served. So that color paste for each item that we have on our menu is in our kitchen. So no matter whoever uh, come, like whoever is coming as a chef for tonight, they're going to follow the exact same procedure. And we also got the monthly audit system where I go every month and then I just go to the kitchen and then as they are serving the food to the guests, I just ask them what is the name of this food and they go blah, blah, blah. And then I just find that food on my recipe book and then go, okay, no, your presentation is different from what we have on the paper so i'm not saying that you i mean you might be doing uh, trying to do better than this but it's not what we have on the recipe book so you might be better at cooking food you might be better at you know like uh, making some amazing dishes but in our venue whatever we have written on the document is this is how we want to present but if you want to try new things then we're going to update it maybe next quarter so we're going to update the recipe book every quarter so no matter whoever is serving the food whoever is serving the cocktail it's presented exactly the same uh, way that you have on the recipe book so i think that brings the consistency and then the other thing is also that i uh, do every month is I go and do the auditing of the uh, kitchen, bar, floor, and everyone in the, uh, like a, a, almost everything in the premises. I actually randomly ask a few uh, front of the house staffs and then ask them to describe uh, some of the dishes from the menu. And uh, and the questions that you just ask me, like what are our signature dish? What is our, you know, our, our core product type of thing and then i just want to see how they actually describe those products so they might have their own opinion but that may be different from what i actually wanted as as an as an owner so what i have done is for each and every product we need to have the description of how i actually wanted to describe this food so this one should come first and this one should come second so uh, you know that that's how actually we actually trying to bring the consistency that means documentation of recipe documentation of processes and documentation of everything that we do uh, and people have some kind of like um, misconception that you know this kind of uh, documentation is too much, and this is done only for the bigger venues. But I actually uh, don't agree with that. Uh, no matter how big or small your business is, we need to be doing this uh, because that's what brings the consistency. Mm. And I mean, you know, some of the things people are talking about a lot in hospitality at the moment is, you know, how hard it is to find staff and also food costs are a massive one, especially when a lot of people are carrying, you know, debts and, you know, stress and exhaustion from the last couple of years. How do you, how are you finding hospitality? Like, does it seem quite challenging as a business or are you finding that, you know, nine months in you are able to be as profitable as you hoped? Um, uh, Staff-wise, we actually are lucky in Hobart because Sydney and Melbourne and other big cities are actually suffering that staff shortages. Uh, it's also most of the people working in hospitality are from international uh, background and then they actually are driven by migration uh, to become a, on, the, on their way to become a permanent residency uh, resident in Australia. So they're not, you can't actually offer them uh, like someone $100,000 and, you know, keep them in your venue because they're not going to become a permanent resident by that $100,000. So what they're actually trying to do is, as for the government policy, they're actually spreading the population back to the regional areas. Um, so generally, people come in bigger cities first, spend a couple of years, finish their studies, and then go to like regional areas like Adelaide, Hobart, Darwin, and you know like places like that. So we have been very fortunate um, you know, to get that uh, inflow of the talented and skilled manpower. So that side is not an issue. And then the second one is obviously 
the the food cost is obviously increasing, so which is a, a bit of challenge. But uh, this is kind of like temporary thing, I, I would say. I mean, uh, any food cost that you have, I mean, you should have unit price anyway. So, uh, and then you also have got that margin. So what I found in the nine, first nine months is uh, I have worked out all the unit prices, and then what are the margins I want to maintain in my food, in my drinks, in my beers, in my stuffies, in the wines, and you know cocktails and so on. So, and when I know that okay, this uh, we have sold this much for today, then I know that you know this is how much I'm making money. Uh, so I think obviously the the, the increase in uh, food uh, the vegetable price and the food cost is is a bit of concern but uh, as i as i you know uh, see it it's going to be a temporary in nature um, and and at the end of the day uh, you know you got that unit price changed and you also look uh, look at the margin you know so the margin might be squeezed for a while but when you have this system and everything in place then when the things are better then i think uh, we will be fine so uh, of of course in terms of your like finance side the First uh, few months, obviously, uh, any hospitality business would have kind of holly, uh, honeymoon sales. <laughs> so everyone wants to come and you know, try those things. So don't get too much excited uh, when you are selling, you know, X or Y amount of uh, turnover per week. Uh, but after that, it gradually settles down. Uh, and then I think the sales that you are doing, especially in the winter, Hobart gets really chilly, you know, in the winter. It's, uh, we have got very, we have reduced our closing time as well. Uh, and it's very, we, uh, it's very hard to get people to get out of the bed, let alone to the pub, you know, in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> but we are trying our best by offering uh, promotional campaigns uh, and by giving them the vibes and the live music and everything. Um, so I think this is something every hospitality business should be doing and they should acknowledge and admit the, uh, the seasonal variation that we all go through and then we have to be prepared for the campaigns and uh, for the promotions. So and the sales that we have uh, uh, since the beginning of our pub, obviously we were impacted a little bit when uh, we were uh, hit by the coronavirus. But uh, apart from that, even in the winter, it's actually picking up the sales and it's meeting our expectations. Do you feel, you know, you've got this you've, this overview of different kinds of industries and you see yourself as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur first who happens to be in hospitality. I mean, yeah. do you think that, that that overview is helpful? Yeah, that's that's right because uh, people have got a uh, kind of like misconception that you know you should be coming from the same field to actually succeed in the business, but that's not true. Uh, people coming from different uh, field might have different experience. Obviously, having knowledge in the field can help you a little bit, but that's not the only factor to succeed in the business. So, if you gave me any. Uh, business example, they, they all could be broken down into you know certain departments like marketing, sales, as I said, operations, product deliver, product development, service delivery, accounting, and finance. So that's how the ITO has been tracking down all the businesses into some single, uh, some a few of the parameters. So I think uh, when you work in one sector for long, uh, then obviously you gain and again the experience. But at the same time, you also develop some behavioral biases, uh, psychological biases that, that you know everything and you stop growing, you stop learning. Um, that I call the overconfidence. And overconfidence is actually a killer in any uh, business, uh, in, in any, uh, any sector. Mm. So you mentioned at the start of our conversation about this flower field that yep. you have in Tasmania. I know that flowers are really important in Nepalese culture. Is that the angle that you're coming from? Is it these sort of ceremonial flowers or what um, made you have that business? 
No, actually, that uh, flower we call makamali, which is a Nepalese ore, but the uh, proper English ore is gumfrena. And that flower we actually uh, comes in different colors, but in Nepal we got predominantly purple in color. Uh, the flower we actually use in uh, uh, Dipawali, like we celebrate Dipawali over five days, uh, like we, uh, and one of those days we actually. Uh, use that flower as a garland and then extend the blessing between the siblings. The flower actually, even if you uh, uh, take that off the, uh, off the plant, it actually lasts forever, um, literally for <laughs> literally longer. And then the, sim, the, sim, uh, uh, the significance of that flower is that the garlands we extend between the siblings, uh, the, the color lasts longer. That means the relationship between the siblings are supposed to last longer. And what happened was when my kids were actually using the, those garlands and playing cricket in my summer hill, Sydney backhand. They dropped off the seats and then it actually shot up automatically in my backhand. And I was looking <laughs> for some inspiration. Yeah, I had a farm and I was looking for some inspiration to create some uh, ecotourism project. And that flower actually gave me that inspiration. And in the first year, in the right in the middle of the COVID, I actually started that project. Uh, knowing all these adversities, I actually went to Hobart and locked myself in uh, 14 days mandatory government uh, quarantine and then came to the field and we actually tested that flower that uh, not as much as I wanted but uh, I, I came to the conclusion that we could do it and then the second year uh, it's it's a, it's a, it's an annual plant not the perennial plant so second year we we wanted to scale this up but the border uh, was closed down and uh, that flower field has got uh, a potential for developing as a, as an ecotourism project just the way how we go to lavender and tulip and so on um, the flower field will also have some cafe and dessert bar and you know some uh, animals and lawns and dining experience and then uh, uh, some accommodation facilities too. So hospitality was completely new to me but uh, I, actually, uh, ha- I actually had done years of research in setting that uh, flower field up and which actually helped me in this talk. Wow. Um, yes, so, so interesting. So um, Kiran, it's a, it's a really difficult time for a lot of people working in hospitality and people that own hospitality businesses with your great experience like what would you what advice could you give to somebody just in terms of mindset and strategy Mm -hmm. about I guess finding a way forward yeah I think first thing is uh, about listening to podcasts like this uh, where you can get the perspective from different people Uh, you are doing great job by bringing people from different backgrounds and different nooks and corners so that they say their experiences uh, and that actually helps us to be open to new ideas uh, to be open to innovation and things like that the second thing is when obviously it's not uh, getting easier for the next uh, few years uh, when uh, we're fighting with the inflation followed by maybe potential recession and all these things. So it's going to be tough here, but I think this should also be taken uh, as an opportunity rather than giving up and quitting on what they are great at. They should be taking this as an opportunity to look at the things. How can they optimize the production? How can they set up the system? How can they set up the standards and uh, make it actual uh, scale uh, ready for uh, scaling up when we have the next leg up uh, and uh, the third thing is uh, mindset is always important uh, than everything so uh, you know just like you to, you need to be very optimistic you need to be very positive and then uh, you just cast on whatever experience uh, with uh, you have so far and then uh, just consolidate those experience and uh, try to make it bigger and better when things are actually uh, going to be better uh, in, in the in the future love it 
Um, I cannot wait to go to the Choke in Hobart and just experience <laughs> this Nepalese pub. Uh, yeah, a, a different version of the Aussie pub. It's so cool. Um, Kieran, now, make sure you say. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, the Nepalese pub, not only because we serve Nepalese food, uh, the music we play in our uh, the public area is also the Nepalese music only. We play national anthem at six o'clock. Australian National Anthem, followed by, followed by Nepal's. Uh, it's, it's to celebrate the uh, Nepalese people's lifestyle or livelihood in Australia. Uh, and we pay respect to uh, one is our motherland and other one is our, you know, our, uh, the land that where we actually putting our hard works and uh, looking for uh, better opportunities. And then uh, the foods that come from are, are served in a very authentic way. So we got, for example, kids meal. We couldn't find any better kids meal in our Nepalese menu for the time being. And then we decided to offer, let's say, nuggets and some fries. And to balance that, we gave them some fruits, fresh fruits like apples, strawberry and some blueberries. Because that is not a typical Nepalese food. We we thought of, uh, uh, we are kind of hesitant to charge money on that. And that's why we actually launched Kids Meal for free. If it was on the menu, then we would have charged them. But if it's not on the menu, that's why we don't charge them. And then uh, we also uh, uh, decorated the venue uh, with the Nepalese, traditional Nepalese uh, freelance vibe and ambience so that when you walk into the venue, you feel like uh, uh, not like in Nepal. And uh, Nepal, Nepal is one of the countries where we got lots of festivals. When it means festivals, you know, food and drink and dance uh, is obviously there. And every month, for example, on the 29th of June, we celebrate a festival where we, we actually drink yogurt and beaten rice uh, to in the, uh, to, to celebrate the, the planting of uh, paddy fields, rice. Uh, and on that particular day, whoever walks into our venue will be offering that typical food that we uh, we would serve in our country, in Nepal, uh, to our guests. Uh, we'll be offering that for free because there are certain days where we we celebrate the Nepalese festival and the guest happening to be entering into our venue for that day uh, will be getting a taste of what it looks like. So if you are planning to go down there, make sure you go to one of those dates. <laughs> wow. I mean, you just make it sound more and more appealing with everything that you say. Um, Hospitality operators should be knowing is people come to their venue uh, for the experience. So we, we're not selling food, we're selling the experience. So, you know, and then investing a lot of time and uh, thinking about creating ambience and then the way so we serve the food is uh, all about creating that, uh, 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 offering that better experience. So people come to the hospitality, not for the food, for the better experience. So invest well, in that. Everything that you say about the pub, Kieran, just makes me want to go there more and more. I can't wait to visit. I, I really appreciate you sharing your yeah, wisdom and insights and enthusiasm with us today. It's um, been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for giving me this opportunity again. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.